And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, January 24th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, this line of federal improper spending is among the most galling. Plus, HHS launches a program to boost prevention of bad health. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Veterans Health Department broke hiring records last year for its health care workforce. Now the Veterans Health Administration is running a few of what it calls access sprints to make sure it's adding more appointment slots for veterans and using all those new people. VA needs more appointments to handle the wave of veterans enrolling for the first time. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with more access sprints. What are they actually trying to do here, Jory? So the whole name of the game is for the Veterans Health Administration to expand the number of appointments that are available across a couple of areas of care. They're starting out by looking at cardiology, mental health, and gastroenterology. And the way that they're going to expand those appointments, the number of them is that they're doing things like offering night and weekend clinics and increasing the number of veterans that each VA provider sees every day. And we recently heard from Undersecretary for Health, Shreef El-Nahal on this. He brief reporters about what these access sprints are going to look like. And he says that it's possible for VHA to expand appointments just because of the record hiring it saw last year. We now have the end strength to be able to increase productivity across the system and provide more care out of the direct care system. And Jory, do we have more details on that Enforce that they were able to do. Give us some of the numbers. Yeah, well, to say that VHA crushed its hiring goals is a bit of an understatement. It, in some areas, more than doubled its hiring goals. In total, VHA hired more than 61,000 employees in fiscal 2023, and that is exceeding one of its marks by about 8,000 hires. And so as a result of that, they're really recalibrating their hiring goals for this year, for fiscal 2024. And Hall says you're actually not going to see that kind of major hiring that you saw last year. The goal this year is not going to be to increase total employees on board, except for very critical staffing areas like mental health. But pretty much for every other category of staff that we have, We think we have what we need to meet that demand. It's on us to increase productivity commensurate with our staffing level to make sure that we are able to provide accessible care. And again, that's Sharif Elnahal. He is the Undersecretary for Health. And Jory, besides more appointments, I mean, that's a physically getting people in for appointments to, I guess, VA or maybe to the external providers. With all these people, do they have fresh goals for health care delivery itself? Yeah, so beyond that capacity, which is the word they keep using again and again, they're also trying to drive down the time for veterans to get to those appointments. And that's something that they're still seeing some issues with here and there. We're going to focus on one of the sprints here, specifically on mental health. While they have since December of last year, they have seen week over week expansions of the number of mental health appointments that they have available. The time to get those appointments, uh, it has either held steady at about 21, 22 days, or in some cases it has increased that wait time. And so that's something that they still have to work on. The way that Hall put it is that they are increasing their capacity to offer these appointments, but at the same time, the demand is going up and it's going up at exactly the same pace here. And so that's why it's kind of a dead heat in some cases. And so Elna Hall says that VHA is looking to boost this employee productivity, as he puts it, but also trying to make sure that they're not going to hit a point where they reach burnout. The reason that we're calling them access sprints is because we're not sure what within that discrete effort will be sustainable into the future. Some things won't be sustainable because we're basically just putting more appointments into the same clinics. And in some cases, we've been able to increase staff. In some cases, we've had level staff. And so our question becomes, what's sustainable for the end 
frontline worker who has to bear that increased load. And we're still figuring that out. Earlier, we mentioned the wave of people signing up for VA for the first time. There's a number on that, too. Yeah, let's look at the demand side of things, because that's really eye-catching. So under the PACT Act, which was passed in the summer of 2022... Under those authorities, which generally speaking, this is expanding eligibility for VA health care and benefits. And since that legislation was signed by President Biden, 100,000 new veterans have used that specific PACT Act authority to enroll in VA health care for the first time. And that's out of a larger pool of folks, 500,000 during that same period of time that in general enrolled in care, PACT Act or no PACT Act. And that's a huge wave of people. This is a good thing. VA wants to maintain that. This They want high enrollments under the PACT Act. That was the whole point. But they still need to deal with this new wave of people and deal with this new wave of demand. And so what we're going to see for this year for fiscal 2024 is that they're going to see, again, under this PACT Act authority, 21,000 additional veterans sign up for VA health care for the first time, specifically under this PACT Act authority. And when you look further out under 10 years, that's going to look more like 84,000 veterans. This is something that VA is keeping its eye on because as enrollment numbers go up, these veterans are getting older. They're going to need more acute care, and they are just trying to uh, stay on top of things, knowing that's going to be the case. All right. And then Elna Hall said there's sort of a geographic element to this. I mean, it's not even growth across all of their centers, is it? Yeah, and that's something that is just growing as a trend and coming into focus more and more. What The way he put it is that VA is seeing asymmetric growth in the places where veterans are enrolling in this care. And to give you a sense of where exactly we're talking about, we're talking about mostly the southeastern U.S., so parts of North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, most of Florida, and some other places too, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, San Diego, and Chicago. So not not any one particular place in pockets, but this is a nationwide footprint, and so they have to make sure that in these hot spots, the staffing is commensurate with that demand. Sure, and God forbid Congress would ever let them rearrange their network to serve the veterans where they actually are. That was tried a couple of years ago and crashed in flames. Yeah, well, that was something we saw under the Air Commission that never took off. But again, VA is adamant that they have to be where the veterans are and meet that demand wherever they live. Well, there's always hope. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still ahead, HHS launches a program to boost prevention of bad health. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A new initiative from Health and Human Services seeks to prevent preventable health problems in what it calls underserved communities. The HEROES program will run through the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, ARPA-H. HEROES stands for Healthcare Rewards to Achieve Improved Outcomes. Here with how it will all work, the program manager, Dr. Darshak Sangavi. Dr. Sangavi, good to have you with us. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. And I want to read a sentence from the description of this program. Heroes aims to trial and validate a radically different approach to creating preventive health care incentives in the health market. What does that mean? I've been a physician for almost 20 years now, and I'm really proud of the work I do and, and many of my colleagues. But think about how we give health care in this country. You know, we wait until people have symptoms or some kind of problem. You go see the doctor. The doctor does something, you know, perhaps they'll, you know, give you medications or diagnose you at that point. The bottom line is it's a very reactive system. And the reason it's that way is because it's the way we pay for care. You only get paid when you actually go out there, you seek out that care, and it's often given in clinics or even in much more acute settings. Now, if there's one thing we've learned in healthcare, it's that we get what we pay for. As a physician, I know I care an enormous amount about my patients, But it's inevitable that the incentives that are set up also change the ways in which we give care. So broadly speaking, if you think about care in our country, we should be really proud of the care we give. The challenge is that 
that it's really weighted towards acute sort of high intensity care when people are already having problems. You think about the fact that we don't have great prenatal care, and yet when women sort of get critically ill, that's when the system springs into action. We don't do a great job with sort of thinking about, well, how are we going to prevent heart disease and stroke? But the minute you have that, you get access to some of the greatest care around. What our program wants to do is to sort of flip those incentives on their heads. And so we want to create a system where innovating around prevention, it's not only the right thing to do, but it also becomes the smart thing to do. And you mentioned in the program, that is, the underserved communities, because there's lots of great preventive care if you're in upper Manhattan, if you're in the canyons of Rodeo Drive, the affluent areas of the country, there are health plans that pay for preventive medicine. You get covered for a couple of annual visits to check up and so forth. Yes. Not the case yes. for those that don't have access to that type of plan. There's certainly an incredibly important sort of trend we've seen is that when you look at where you live, your zip code and your income often determines how long you're going to live and how healthy you are. There's no reason that should be the case, but it has to do with the ways in which we've set up the system. So you're absolutely right that part of our program and what we're trying to do is to create an incentive and a way in which we care for Americans that doesn't depend as much on those things of like where you live and how much money you happen to make and to create that sort of accountability so that we truly create better health outcomes for everybody. All right. And how will the program, the HEROES program, actually go about doing this? So the key innovation is that maybe uh, sort of using sort of the terms of business and economics, we are going to create an incentive to actually buy outcomes at geographic scale. Now, what does that really mean? Well, think about it this way. Let's take one of the potential outcomes we'll look at, which is the rate of opioid overdoses. You know, we know that opioids are a major crisis, one of the leading causes of death for young people in the United States. And think about what we do now. You know, we wait till sort of people have overdoses. You kind of go out there, you treat them, but we don't do a great job. Only 25% of individuals, even after they have an overdose and go to an emergency room, I mean, think about that. You've actually overdosed. They brought you to the ER. Only 25% of them actually get evidence-based care to actually develop a long-term path to recovery. And why is that? Well, that's because nobody is accountable for that entire community. So the HEROES program, for example, we're going to do this for four outcomes and get comment on that initially. But what we're going to do is an organization could say, look, we're going to take this area. Literally, they're going to draw a line around a population. So they'll say these half million people or, you know, or more, I'm going to be responsible for their rates of opioid overdoses. Doesn't matter who you are, where you live, who your insurer is, but you'll be responsible for them. We at ARPA-H then, this is the magic. We will then actually create a payment program to say, well, if you can lower the rate of overdoses, and we're going to measure it, you know, almost in real time, you get paid for that for the entire population. So in other words, for the first time for a whole population, we create a business case and incentive to buy that outcome. Now, what that'll do is then it'll create an incentive for kind of innovation. Well, how are we going to get to that whole population? Are we going to get to the community? Are we going to move outside the clinic? All the kinds of things that our innovators can do to then truly address the need of that whole population. We are speaking with Dr. Darshak Sangavi. He is a program manager at ARPA-H. And what types of organizations will be eligible to do this? Because, frankly, it sounds ambitious. Well, we need all the help and creativity we can get. So what we're looking for is we want to move outside the just the traditional types of healthcare delivers, doctors, clinics, nurses, physical therapists. So these can be larger provider systems. It can be early stage technology or startup companies. They can be nonprofits. And in the best case scenario, we would get consortia where they would sort of voluntarily come together and apply as a team because this really is a team sport. We also want to unlock sort of the private sector's ability to truly innovate here. So our only recommendation is that the primary applicant, what we call health accelerators, can't be a federal or state agency as the primary. What types of incentives are available to these 
organizations or consortia get hundreds of thousands, millions, billions? I mean, how much money is behind all of this? (laughs) Yeah. uh, So what we're doing is uh, we have used our, you know, modeling and we've kind of looked at our data. And what we've done is we've set targets that we believe will generate realistically about 60 million dollars of societal value in each of these areas so for example you know we've set a target if you choose say severe obstetrical complications you know we all talk about maternal mortality we believe that we can reduce that by about 20 percent in an area and that'll generate 60 million dollars of value and that's a lot of value for people it's not just money but behind that are real lives so we will pre-purchase in each region 15 million dollars and because we want to make this sustainable, we are going to preference areas where others also step up to supplement us. Like, for example, healthcare payers, philanthropy, employers, everybody who benefits at about a two to one match. That's what we're shooting for. And so it'll be about a $45 million pot of money that can be earned. So that's sort of the incentive for organizations to hit those metrics. And what is the baseline time period? Because if you're going to, say, reduce fentanyl deaths or reduce obstetric complications, you know, how do you measure that and over what period of time? Yeah, this will be the year where we're going to sort of have people apply. And then the performance period will be starting in the first quarter of next year. And it's going to be a three-year program. We actually believe that these are all urgent issues. And most importantly, we already know what to do around, say, opioid overdoses or obstetrical complications. It is not a mystery. So what we'd like to do is to truly create that incentive for rapid improvements. As I said, 25% of people are getting evidence-based care. We don't need to wait three years to get people into better care. An enormous number of women, when they're hospitalized for childbirth, they're exposed to a system that's not doing the things that need to be done to prevent complications. Again, we know what to do. We don't need to wait as long. So our hope is that by creating this incentive, we'll accelerate the adoption of that innovation in a way that's truly accountable. And you mentioned there are four areas. Where are they? So the four areas are, and we chose these because we want this to be an American program. We want there to be something in here for almost every age group and every geography. So we intentionally chose outcomes that sort of span that. So those are, as I mentioned, severe obstetrical complications, obviously a big issue. Mentioned opioid overdoses. Um, you know, affects generally younger people at certain geographic distribution, and then risk of heart attack and stroke, you know, slightly older population, and finally, alcohol-related health harms. So those are the four outcomes. What we're doing right now, and this very moment, people can go online and let us know which of those outcomes they're most interested in pursuing. We've put all four out there. We're going to collect sort of feedback And the initial program is going to sort of really zero in on two of those outcomes. And then we will potentially add other outcomes in the future. But we want people's feedback about where they think the energy really is. And how will you choose the geographical areas? So we want a program, as I said, that looks like America. And you pointed out, you know, we want to get to areas where historically we have needed to invest more. So I'll say two things. The first is that a requirement for the program is that an organization will have to choose a geographic area, and it has to be a contiguous geographic area, where the outcome is worse than the national average. We want people to sort of take on areas that where at least there's some challenge. It's not already doing great. The second thing is that we will also really think about that distribution. We want to have like rural areas represented. We want to have areas that have really kind of diverse populations as well. We will not be happy if there's a program that's just sort of concentrated, say, on the coast or only in the Midwest, but rather something which truly looks like it's a national program. That means that it's open to anyone anywhere at this point. Who will make these decisions within ARPA-H? We are hoping, first of all, that right now we have a letter of interest period. So as you said, anybody can sort of let us know they're interested. What we're going to do is we are also going to have an in-person and hybrid event. We call them proposers days. People are invited to join us in Washington, D.C. on February 13th and 14th to meet the team, to meet each other. How is this supposed to work? You know, and you can attend hybrid as well if it's difficult to get in person and you'll get that information. We're going to take that feedback 
and then release a formal and full solicitation. That's our fancy term for like the application process in early April. I would emphasize one of the great things about RPH is we don't do stuff the way government usually works. In other words, the application process is going to be short, maybe eight or 10 pages through an abstract tells what do you want to do. That is not how government usually works because that signals that we want to be open to organizations that, you know, don't have tons of lobbyists and hire grant writers and all that. That's what we're looking for. So when they come in and answer your question, we will look at that. That's where we'll have a team of government folks that will sort of score each of those along all those criteria. And then we'll come back and then solicit full applications for the program from those organizations. And finally, are you working with HRSA? Because that organization, your sister organization in HHS, has hundreds of care facilities in those very places you might be concerned with. Yeah. HRSA, for those who are not familiar, federally qualified health centers. And there's even more than that. There's Indian health services. There's Medicaid programs. There's opioid treatment facilities. So What we're doing is we're trying to bring all the pieces of government together. Not only, as you said, are there clinics that serve these locations, but we also need to make sure we're bringing along the business case. We've been working very closely with our colleagues at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Let's make sure we do that in collaboration. The Centers for Disease Control, you know, they've thought a lot about public health over the past couple of years. NIH has made investments in a number of technologies as well. So we're trying to pull them together and along But keep in mind, we're there really at the service of our private sector partners. So we stand ready to help them. But what we're doing is by creating this incentive, we want these communities to sort of rise up. They know their communities best. They're going to sort of pick and choose. We'll make sure all these things are available. They're the ones that will be accountable. They're the ones that are going to get the rewards from the program. And a personal question for you, ARPA-H program managers come from outside. It's a temporary type of position. Clearly, you're passionate about delivering health care, and so you don't want to stay in the government, likely. Well, maybe you do for the rest of your career. Will you be around long enough to see the three-year outcomes of some of the grants, essentially? Yeah, I, I sure hope so. So this is actually my third stint in government. Many, many years ago, I was a pediatrician on the Navajo Reservation before I trained as a pediatric cardiologist. I then spent a couple years actually as a group director in the Obama administration at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, developing several nationwide programs. And then I spent time also in the private sector as an executive at uh, large payer provider organizations and even an international company. So this is a three-year term we're appointed to, and we can be re-up once. So my goal is to be here to make sure that we execute this. The good news is that we've got an amazing team. So, you know, who knows where things go, but We believe that ARPA-H and our programs are here to stay, and we're in it for the long haul as individuals, but importantly as an organization as well. And do you hope to, at some point before you hang it up, be able to place a stethoscope on a tiny chest again? I do. The good news, and again, this is the other thing about ARPA-H, it's an amazing place to be for somebody who wants to make real change because we're flexible. I mentioned we're flexible in terms of how we engage people, how people apply. It's just different. I also, I may mention, I'm a pediatric cardiologist. Um, at ARPA-H, they've allowed me to still see patients um, occasionally. So I still take call one weekend a month. So the good news is I still get to put that stethoscope on baby's chest every now and then. Dr. Darshak Sangavi is a program manager at the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health and a pediatric cardiologist. Thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, why pricing and quantities go hand-in-hand for fixed-price contracts. But first, this line of federal improper spending is among the most galling. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Federal improper payments roll on and on year after year, and among the most frustrating, fraudulent unemployment benefits, federal dollars that get spent by the states. Last fall, the Government Accountability Office estimated that as much as 15% of pandemic-era unemployment spending went to fraudsters, as much as $135 billion. For a review of what it recommended and any progress since then, the GAO's Director of Forensic Audits, Seto Bagdoyan. Seto, good to have you back with us. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me back. 
And just a quick question. The official tally is around $55 billion in pandemic relief spending that was fraudulent for unemployment benefits. But the imputed and derived number that GAO came up with has an upper limit of $135 billion, almost three times as much. Tell us about the differential there, for starters. Right. Great question. So the $55 billion or so is a point-in-time number that is actually pretty dated by now. Uh, it was last reported around a May timeframe when we were finalizing our analyses. So that is what the states report to the Department of Labor at the federal level. And these are actually cases that they've investigated, reviewed, and made a determination that the benefit was paid out either through administrative error or fraud. Now, our estimate, the up to $135 billion that you mentioned, is an estimate based on statistical and econometric modeling, which is well over my head. But it is very sophisticated, pioneering work, first of its kind estimate, and uh, we think it's a good one. I would also note that it's likely understated because we didn't have the full picture of fraudulent cases to sample from. It's a bit complicated, but it is a point in time estimate that gives us a good idea of how bad the problem has been. And what do we understand about the mechanisms of the fraud? That is, in unemployment benefits, individuals apply individually. But what right. we have seen, say, in another area that's rife with fraud, and that is Medicare, Medicaid benefits, often there's an organization behind it submitting yes. multiple claims from the same yeah. medical office that they've Xeroxed off and so forth, purported right. medical office, this kind of thing. It's organized. Do we know about unemployment insurance? During the pandemic, the new risks that arose were from organized criminal enterprises, both domestic and foreign. They targeted the weak systems at the state level. What controls there were in place were relaxed, actually. And both the federal government and the state agencies that process unemployment relied on self-reporting and self-attestation, which is the perennial bugaboo for auditors. That is just an absolutely red light in terms of increasing risk for fraud. And what about the geographical variations? For example, was one state particularly egregious and one state virtuous? Well, there weren't any virtuous ones, I must say, which is pretty sad commentary on the whole program integrity structure out there. There were states such as Arizona that were really pummeled, both from domestic and foreign actors all over. I mean, Michigan, California, you may have heard about the 18 to $20 billion number of fraudulent payments. I think it was pretty much across the board that the fraudsters probed for weak spots and unfortunately, they found many of them, and they exploited those weak spots. And gosh, if you look at the upper line number there, that's enough to fund the Homeland Security Department and the Labor Department and the Education Department all combined, roughly. Yeah, it is a big, big number. And as I mentioned earlier, it's likely understated. And we will also, as we know it in our report, never fully know the full extent of fraud. We're speaking with Seto Bagdoyan. He's Director of Forensic Audits and Investigations at the GAO. And the other part of the report states that there were, in fact, substantial multi-million dollar grants from the Labor Department to states for the purposes of implementing anti-fraud. Were those completely wasted or could it have been worse, I suppose? Well, that's a good question. We tallied about $1.4 billion in federal assistance to the states. The states had to apply for these grants and essentially describe what they intended to do with the money. Much of that is still playing out. In fact, at the time of our reporting, the states were still planning long-term efforts to get their act together, basically. One thing I would note as part of the assistance, the federal government made available these so-called tiger teams of experts that would actually go on site, essentially, to states and, and work with them to uh, figure out what went wrong and make a number of recommendations. We tallied over 300 total recommendations. And at the time of our report, we didn't have any indication that any of those recommendations had actually been implemented that's to be expected. To be fair, these things are long-term propositions. 
but the recommendations have to be implemented in the spirit and intent in which they were made. And you mentioned that some of the states had loosened the requirements. Did they do that on their own behest or was that on advice of the Labor Department? They mostly did it on their own. These are partnership programs. Unemployment insurance is a partnership. Federal, state, the feds, the Labor Department are to provide some level of oversight and ensure accountability. But the state workforce agencies or SWAs, those are the dedicated entities at each state level who run the unemployment insurance program. And they're the ones who relaxed controls or removed them altogether, relied on stealth reporting and attestation, mainly because they were just absolutely slammed with applications for benefits. And in order to get the money out under such pressure, they pulled the plug on the controls and the results are massive fraud. Yeah, that's the thing that makes the blood of an accountant and an auditor curdle when you hear relaxed controls on purpose. That's right. Yeah, that's a big (laughs) no-no. And the sad part is there was actually a need for unemployment insurance as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a noble thing to do is provide people with something to live off of while things change back to normal, but you do expose yourself to a lot of fraud risk. And that's what happened here. And what has the Labor Department done since then, now that we've had a period of relative peace? I mean, have they at least demanded that states reinstate their controls that would be in place in the normal good fiscal operation of any public entity? So great question. We don't have any active audits currently. What we do is we track the status of recommendations we made to the Labor Department. Uh, They are the action agency, if you will. We did not make any recommendations to the states. So they have taken some action. They've identified people who are at least nominally in charge of managing fraud risks and developing a strategy of sorts to counter fraud risk and some other actions but they have a long way to go. We had a little over two dozen open recommendations at one point. I think we may have closed about 25% or so of those, but the bulk of them remain open. And so it's up to what, Congress or somebody's got to put some pressure somewhere to make sure that this gets tightened up because it sounds like it's still a potential, even back to normal unemployment level payouts that the the level of fraud could return. Yeah, congressional oversight is important, and our congressional clients have been active in this space, but we also have a regular monitoring process. Agencies are to report back to us on progress, especially when they have something concrete for us to look at. We will review that and see whether it is responsive to the recommendation, and then we'll work with the agency to take steps to close the recommendation as implemented based on the evidence they provide. We don't take just their word for it, of course. And then subsequently, several years perhaps from now, when we go back and take another look at unemployment insurance, we'll see whether those recommendations were actually implemented and what, if any, effect they had. And just a final question. The pandemic, I guess, is officially over, has been for some time. The unemployment program is a longstanding program. At some point, does one kind of fade away and we're out of whatever's left over of pandemic issues and just back to regular unemployment as it existed before the pandemic? Right. All the pandemic era programs have expired. So we are back to regular order, if you will. But the pandemic experience actually changed the risk landscape dramatically. The introduction of these organized crime entities, especially from overseas, that is a very concerning development. But the bottom line here is, if I may leave you with this, is basically don't incur losses up front to fraud because you are going to get very little of it at the back end. In pandemic era programs, we're looking at 6% recovery rate of fraudulent payments as reported by the states. And for the pandemic unemployment assistance program, the infamous PUA, which relied exclusively for a while on self-reporting, the rate of recovery is four cents on the dollar. At least it was at the time of our reporting. So keep the money and forego the clawback headlines. 
yeah, the clawback is it's it's not a way to do business. Uh, it's it has failed wherever and whenever it's been tried. Seto Bagdoyan is director of forensic audits and investigations at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom, for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, why pricing and quantities go hand in hand for fixed price contracts. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. A contractor got into a pricing squeeze when the customer, in this case the Marine Corps, way underestimated the quantities for the services under the contract. It learned what can happen when the legal proceedings get complicated. For details on the lessons learned, we turn to Haynes Boone procurement attorney, Zach Prince. And Zach, let's start at the end here. What was the lesson learned? What's the principle we're talking about that every contractor needs to know here? So what was interesting about this case, Tom, and the reason that I want to talk about it is because of the dispute about a release. And a release is, like it sounds like, it, it releases the government or the contractor, depending on you know, the language, from further claims relating to the subject matter. The government shoves these in to a lot of routine modifications. And if you're not paying careful attention, you might have signed something that says, you know, here's this new FAR clause that will actually have pretty substantial costs, and that happens frequently. And executing this mod is a bilateral agreement that the parties have no further liability to one another arising from the facts, you know, giving rise to this mod. So you have these sort of sweeping formalistic releases that come into a lot of modifications, and contractors are often not reading them and just signing them. And then when later they realize, wait a minute, what we just signed has huge costs, it's too late. Right. We have signed away our firstborn and can't get it back. (laughs) How did that work in this particular case? This was between the Marine Corps and a contractor that was tailoring uniforms. Yeah. So at the end of the day, the board in this case, I think, didn't like the idea of a formalistic waiver of rights. But what happened here is the Marine Corps awarded the contract to this company in 2018 for uniform tailoring. And the pricing was based off of the Marines' estimates for types and number of alterations. And those estimates apparently proved to be grievously underestimated. And in 2021, the company submitted a request for equitable adjustment seeking essentially a doubling of the unit prices for the task orders that had already been performed under this contract and then a change going forward as well to the unit pricing. The government responded that it would be a good idea for the contractor to withdraw the REA, submit a new one, because the amount they were seeking was constantly fluxing just because they're continuing to perform work. And so it was hard for the government to nail down the exact fixed amount the contractor was seeking. Why don't you, contractor, just submit an REA for a go-forward change to the unit pricing Then once we've got a unit price that's established, submit a new REA to seek the retroactive recovery of the impact of that unit price for everything that's happened so far. Sounds like the government was maybe laying a trap there from what actually happened. Based on what actually happened, you might be right. But what I think, you know, with many things in government, there was an interesting decision in the Court of Federal Claims recently. They said, never chalk up to malfeasance what incompetence would just as easily explain. (laughs) Sure. And that's probably this case, too. The contractor did just that. They listened to the government. They said, "Okay, here's our second REA. We withdraw the first one. This one just seeks the change in the unit prices. And the government responded by issuing a draft final decision with draft modifications that granted that relief. They had some quibbling about the dates, but the government just accepted the argument. They acknowledged that their estimates were wrong and they acknowledged that there was an impact. That reworking, though, was for from this point forward on the prices and it didn't address so far as the contractor knew what had happened to date when it presumably lost money. Exactly right. And the contractor was very clear that, good, we're going to resolve this, and now we're going to go ahead and submit our next REA, 
for all the money going back. But the issue was the government had included these very broad releases in the draft modification. The contractor caught that issue and they said, hold on, we want you to go back to legal and confirm that this release doesn't actually impact our ability to go back and seek the money for the prior period, which is what we had always said we're going to do. The government told them to do. And we'd like you to actually amend it so that it, it's really clear that that's the case. And the government responded and said, well, we don't have authority to change this, which is silly because it's a contracting officer. But, you know, go ahead and execute this and it'll be fine. And the contractor assumed that that meant that, in fact, it would be fine. We are speaking with procurement attorney Zach Prince. He's a partner at Haynes Boone. And I'm afraid to ask what happened next. Lo and behold. A few months after it executed the mods with these broad releases, they submitted the new REA and the government very quickly, within a week, I think, denied the REA on the basis that it had been released. Any claims had been released pertaining to these facts, which construed most broadly means that they also waived the look back claim. Right. So REA, again, is a request for equitable adjustment. And when the contractor submitted that claim, that uh, request for equitable adjustment on the prior part of the contract, da-da, there was a release in the way and too bad, basically, the government was saying. That's what they were trying to do to the contractor here. And, you know, it's hard to swallow this. I think this is the second case in the last couple of months that I've spoken with you about where the government tried to pull a procedural trap that struck me as really unfair. And this is another example where the government tried to pull this card that they knew full well when they negotiated this REA, the contractor did not think they were releasing the claim. Not only that, the government told the contractor to submit the claim this way, and then they're trapping them. They say, ah, we got you. We've got this release. All right. So then what happened? So, Did they take him to court? So they took him to the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals, which is where the case is now. And it's a $800,000 case. So usually in that context, you'll do an expedited procedure where you don't do some of the more formal trial mechanisms that you would do if it were a really big case. And the government moved for summary judgment. So they asked the court to decide just on the record before it that the release barred the claim. And that's that. Well, the board didn't agree. The board found that, yeah, the language of the release appears to be clear and unambiguous, but you have to look to context, particularly in the context of a release. You have to understand the circumstances, which allows here you to bring in the intent of the parties, which means, at least for now, the government can't win on the issue of the release. That doesn't mean the contractor won either. That's going to go on to later proceedings, effectively a, a hearing. But for now, at least, the government did not win on this issue. Interesting. So the lesson then is to read your claims, read your contracts, basically read whatever the government puts in front of you to sign. Yeah, I, I'd say there are a few lessons here, but the two biggest ones to me are, one, make sure that you understand what you're signing from the government always, even if it's a routine mod. You know, I'm thinking back to the COVID vaccine clause, because that one struck me as crazy that the government was including releases in every mod that they issued on that, saying that you're not owed any money for something that is obviously a sweeping impact for most companies. Even if the government says, don't worry, it's routine, read what they're putting in front of you. Ask your lawyers if you have to. Make sure you understand what it is you're signing. And if it says anywhere, this is you know, a satisfaction of any issues that could arise from the set of facts, that's a release. And that means that you might not be able later, if you realize that there is a cost to the change, to get any money. The second thing I would caution contractors to be careful of is don't rely on statements that somebody in the government makes that seems to contradict otherwise clear contract language. And I don't think it's because the government is always trying to trap you. There are probably people out there who are. It's because people move around and people, you know, your contracting officer today might not be your contracting officer tomorrow. In this case, your contract specialist never had authority to bind the government. And it's not fair, but it's just the reality that if the government says something means something that the words don't suggest, words 
matter and mean things, right? And you just have to be careful that the things you sign reflect what you believe they should and not what one of the parties says they do. Got it. And by the way, this company was called Sonabend. And what was it they were actually doing for the Marine Corps? Uniform tailoring, actually. They were uh, tailoring uniforms for Marine Corps recruits. Recruits have their uniforms tailored? It looks like it. They've got a first fitting and a second fitting. And the issue here was all about the second fitting alterations. I guess that comes eight weeks after they enter and they're done with basic training. They have to have them taken in, we hope, or something. But anyway, well, <laughs> there's somebody's got to do everything. Procurement attorney Zach Prince is a partner at Haynes Boone. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you have your podcast taken in. Here's the cybersecurity question of the day. When a contractor uses a cloud provider to store controlled unclassified information, CUI, who's responsible for the security of that data? Cloud provider, contractor, or the government? It's no trivial matter. A new memo from the Defense Department clarifies who's accountable for ensuring the security of cloud services at the FedRAMP moderate level, anyway. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis has more. Tell us what's in this memo, Anastasia. We got this new memo in December, but it didn't become public until January. It's not long. It's only two pages, but it has a lot in it. And it says it provides guidance and clarification on the application of the FedRAMP moderate equivalency to cloud services when the services are used to store controlled unclassified information. Basically, it finally clarifies who is responsible for making sure that controlled unclassified information is stored and processed securely in the cloud. There is this clause within the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation Supplement, or DFARS, regarding the application of FedRAMP moderate to cloud services that are used by contractors for storing controlled unclassified information. There has been a lot of back and forth in terms of what it actually means to be FedRAMP moderate equivalent. But with this new memo, if contractors are using cloud services to store controlled unclassified information, let's say you go to Amazon for your cloud services, the cloud provider must achieve 100% compliance with the latest FADRAMP moderate security control baseline through an assessment conducted by a third-party organization. Plus, the contractor should have a list of evidence including a system security plan, a security assessment plan, a security assessment report, and a plan of actions and milestones. I talked to a lot of people, and specifically, I asked Grant Schneider. He's a senior advisor to the Alliance for Digital Innovation and a former digital chief information security officer about how hard it would be to achieve that 100% compliance. And he said that none of this is new, but the part that will be challenging is that plan of actions and milestones. From an, an evidence standpoint, the evidence requirements is pretty consistent with things that are going to be in your security package, I think. And, and I haven't memorized the memo, but I don't think there's, there's anything in there that's going to be super hard for organizations to come up with. The 100% compliance and the inability to have a plan of action and, and milestone even though they list plan of action and milestone as a piece of the evidence that you have to meet every element under uh, FISMA moderate under eight, 853. You know, I think that may be a challenge for organizations to, to meet. And there may be some technical solutions that don't lend themselves to every single control in the, in the control catalog. And that could also, you know, add some challenges. So I think that's going to be a question of A, can organizations get there? B, if I already have a FedRAMP ATO and for a variety of reasons, I'm not already at 100% of every element, as a company, do I want to make the investment to get to 100% in order to do business with DOD? That's just going to be a, a business decision organizations are going to need to consider. That's Grant Schneider from the Alliance for Digital Innovation. All right. And uh, you also spoke to Raj Iyer, the former Army CIO, knows his way around federal and defense cybersecurity. What did he say is in the memo that's noteworthy? When Raj and I were talking about the memo, he emphasized that we finally 
have more information in terms of who is responsible for what. The memo says that the contractor approves their organization's cloud services and ensures that their selected cloud service provider has a response plan. According to the memo, moving forward, the contractor, not the cloud service provider, will be held responsible for reporting a compromise for reporting any compromise that happened and making sure that their cloud provider follows the incident response plan. The contractor will also be the one making sure that the cloud provider can notify the contractor. And the onus is on the contractor to validate that the evidence provided by the third-party organization meets the moderate equivalent standards outlined in the memo. And here is Raj Iyer. He is the global head of public sector for ServiceNow and a former chief information officer of the army on this part of the memo. Because one of the things that we learned in the early days of cloud was there was a lot of finger pointing going on when something bad ha- would happen. Right? Let's say, a, you know, a vulnerability would be found or a zero day event that happened. There was this confusion around, okay, is that the cloud service provider's responsibility? Is it the contractor's responsibility? Is it the government's responsibility, you know, or somebody else? Like who really is responsible? And I think what this memo clarifies is that at the end of the day, the, the DOD's contract is with that company A, and they got to make sure that they have an incident response plan, which shows how they're going to coordinate any kind of, you know, remediation or triaging, you know, that needs to happen when, when there is an incident that happens. And that way, you know, DOD holds the contractor accountable and responsible, and it's their job to coordinate with all of the stakeholders. And that's Raj Iyer, the former Army CIO. Anastasia, does this have any impact on the cybersecurity maturity model certification program? There's a proposed rule on that. Does this have any effect on that? It will have to impact the final rule. The CMMC proposed rule came out right around the time the memo was signed, which means that the text for the proposed rule was written way before the memo was written. And the proposed CMMC rule adds very little detail to DFAR 7012. And the requirements be and the requirements appear to be a lot more strict, more stringent than what's in the proposed rule. So the DOD will most likely have to align both documents for the final CMMC rule, but we'll see. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.